Hey, listeners, welcome to another episode of the Kids Ministry 101 podcast. Just a bit ago, we had our friend Nick Blevins on talking about the importance of recruiting, some strategies for recruiting, some barriers that we have to get beyond, uh, and just some sort of our, our own uh, our own hesitations about, about doing recruiting in a way that we can do it with confidence. If you missed that episode, go back and find it in the archives. Uh, you can find all that at lifeway.com slash kids. Click on the blog link and you will find the archives or wherever you consume this podcast. Dig back through those archives and look for that previous session with our friend, Nick Blevins. Nick, welcome back. It's good to have you back. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. After we talked about my lacking skills in lawn management. In lawn management. Uh, yeah. Maybe we'll skip that this time and talk about something else. I'm not yeah. Let's talk about that. something else. I Well, I know what I want to talk about. So okay. right now I reside in Nashville and I've been here for several years. Just my ministry has taken me all over the country, but I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up in New Jersey. So home is Jersey for me. And I know you are in Maryland. And I'm, I don't have, I know a few friends from Maryland, but I don't know a lot about what it's like to be a Marylander. Is that, is that the proper term? First of all? Yes, that is the proper term. Yeah. The, Marylander. Um, yeah. I'd say I grew up here ever since I was two years old. It's one thing people love about this area is you can go, you know, a few hours to the beach, not even a few hours to the mountains, DC, Baltimore, Philly, like New York, yeah, three hours away. So it's kind of like if you like variety, you know, you can do all those things. You that's that. prime. Yeah, it is. I like the beach. So that's the part that I like. And I actually like to even go even more south. Uh, but I'm like every a lot of locals around here. We grew up going to Ocean City, Maryland, you know, uh -huh. with my family when I was a kid. Seafood is a big thing around here. Maryland blue crabs specifically and uh, Old Bay seasoning on them. Like there's, you know, that's just like Old a Bay seasoning. Yeah, that's good. yeah. And people that move here, the idea of picking and eating steamed crabs. It's some people it's like, uh, that's gross. That feels like, you know, like seventh grade science class. We're, di we're dissecting something. Uh, and, but I do love that. I do love steamed crabs. So we take me, tell me a bit about that. You said picking and eating. What, do, what does that yes, mean? Yes. Yes. So like you steam the crabs up, they get seasoning on them all day. And then when you're going to eat them, you're picking apart a crab, pulling legs off, eating oh, the wow. meat, opening up the, and it's, I'm not going to lie. It's not exactly pretty inside there, Chuck. Uh, so I understand why people come in from another state or, you know, if they've never been exposed to that, they think, uh, that's gross. I'm not doing yeah, that. But, uh, but then, yeah, you grew up here. <laughs> Here's the thing for me, though. So this is where I probably divert from being like a, a good Marylander. Okay. Um, it takes so long to pick and eat a crab. It's a great social thing, like to get your friends together. And I mean, you could spend three hours, you know. Sure. Uh, I like to eat. Okay. And I like to be full. Um and you don't really get that full eating crabs because it takes so long to pick them that, you know, I'm like, okay, I just need to eat something else. Can we eat just something more hearty? It's going <laughs> to yeah, fill you yeah, up. Yeah. Is there any way we can just do this really quick? And, you know, so I'm more of like a crab cake guy, actually, you know, where it's, oh you know, yeah, there's a lot more there to it and it tastes great. So that's some of what it is to be around here. There's a movie even where, what is it? Uh, crab cakes and football, I think is what is talked about. That is also true. It's a big pro football town with the Ravens. And I am a big yeah. Ravens fan. And you're, so you Titans are, I was going to, okay. I was going to ask because one of the things about being where you are regionally is you've actually got a lot of teams you can choose from. I mean, down in Nashville here, we've got the Titans and everybody loves the Titans. Yep. Not everybody, not, I don't know anybody who dislikes the Tyson, the Titans uh, because uh -huh. they, they are not, let's be honest. They're not good enough to have a lot of enemies. So you can <laughs> like the Titans and whoever else you like, but Ravens fans are pretty pretty committed aren't they they are and your fans by the way i know from experience are very nice and that's because nashville is so nice and kind 
that's not exactly Baltimore's reputation, Chuck. Okay, so, um, good. We'll just go with passionate and committed. Yes, uh, they are. In fact, Ravens and Titans have had a couple rivals over they the years. They have over the years. years, yeah. Yes, and even recently, uh, a few years ago, I'd say, there was a little bit of that going on. So, yeah, I love football. Now, the Orioles is another big thing up here, baseball. Okay, I just yeah. happened to, um, I lost my love of baseball actually playing as a kid. It just, uh, you know, it got so boring for me that even watching it, it's like, yeah, I can't. But going to the game. Baseball? Baseball's like picking at a crab. It kind of takes it a is. yeah, that's a commitment. <laughs> yes, exactly. See, we're tapping into like what my See, there you go. Is. It's true. I'm I'm just too distracted. And going to the game's great. You know, the food, the environment, the Camden Yard Stadium is an amazing atmosphere. But watching 160 games a year, I know they put the pitch clock in this year, but I still don't know if that's gonna pull me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I guess the, the jury's still out on pitch clock. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people love it, but they're, I know they're trying to speed that. it up for TV, right? Yeah. Well, so I, I grew that. up in New Jersey, and so for me, it was the Yankees and uh-huh. the Giants, the New York football giants. Those are my teams. Now, for better or worse, we, we were not heavy rivalries with Baltimore in either as I was growing up, right? We yeah. so like the Eagles, that man, Philly. No, those are the yeah, I love yeah. you, my friends in Philly. I love you, but Philadelphia fans—they're the obnoxious ones. They probably oh, say yeah. that about That's us. That's another too. level. That's another level. Yeah, Baltimore's not quite to that level. The Giants and Ravens did play in a Super Bowl, and the Yankees yes, pretty much just dominate the Orioles, unfortunately for Baltimore fans. You which, know, they, which is really good for us. And so I'll just yes, feel good yeah. about that for the moment. For the moment. <laughs> That's right, man. So it's so fun to have you on. One one of the things that we you know want to do through everything we do at Lifeway Kids, but through the podcast and other areas is we want to have really good representation, not just in the Southeast, but all over the country, in the North, the East and the West. And so Nick, I'm so glad to have you on to share your perspective as a kids ministry thought leader for one, but as a guy who serves in a part of the country that is not exactly the Bible belt, you have perspective, right? That is unique and different and really valuable for all of our listeners. Yeah, it's definitely not the Bible Belt. That is for sure. You know, I remember years ago, I mean, it's what I've known. I understand the Bible Belt. You know, my wife's from the South. She's born in South Carolina. Her dad is a pastor. Her grandfather was a pastor, mostly in the South and out West. And so I, I get I get that culture, but it is it is very different. We've had a number of church leaders that'll move here, work for a church from the Midwest or the South. And, and sometimes it's like, yeah, I'm going back <laughs> Maybe because... Well, it's a different culture, but I love it. You know, I've heard uh, John Acuff sometimes talk about how, like, I think he's from Boston and he just talks about like the Northeast. It's like, it's harder. People aren't as nice. Uh, That is very true. People are far more nice in Nashville. Now it is, it is real though. That is the thing that's probably a little helpful is like people, people are what they are. And if you're in, you know, there's kind of like a, it's like a family thing, you know, people there's loyalty there. So that's fun, but it's a, it's a different, yeah, landscape, you know, in terms of churches, highly Catholic uh, yeah. was the influence here, you know, in, in our region and even the surrounding cities. And so you have, you know, most people have some connection to Catholic church, you know, yeah. in their past. And so it's a little different, certainly than the South, but it's home. I love it. And that's really and, similar uh, to my, my observations growing up in New Jersey, very Catholic, mm-hmm. very yep. much uh, Protestant or Catholic, you know, in terms yes. of where you follow in the faith. Uh, it's just really different than what I found in the South. And there's not as much a sense of a cultural Christianity where it's just assumed no. that everybody goes to church somewhere. And so what I have found, yes, ministry can be hard uh, in the Northeast and other regions. But if somebody's at church, it's probably because they really, truly want to be there. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, but it certainly changes the mission and the ministry of who we are serving. 
as we minister to kids and families, it's very different based on uh, the what's happening in the in the community and the culture around us. So, mm-hmm. Nick, man, thank you, thank you for investing yourself. Uh, I know you your influence is, reaches a lot of churches in a lot of places, and uh, so I admire you as a friend as, as I watch your ministry, and I'm so glad you have the opportunity to come and share with our listeners some of these specific things about volunteer recruitment. And today I'd like to talk about volunteer development. How do we, what can we do uh, to help uh, not only recruit them, but train them and equip them and empower them for success in ministry. So we talked last time about some ideas around recruiting and the need for that. Let's talk this time about some more of maybe the, um, the values uh, underneath all of that about like what, how do you communicate uh, that sense of purpose uh, as you seek to recruit? Yeah. And I actually, and when I set up to write the volunteer playbook book 10 years ago, Chuck, that's how long it took me to write it. I'm not a very great disciplined person. Um, In my mind, I thought what I was going to do was write something where you could, it would help you build a strong ministry foundation from the ground up. So this idea of like mission, vision, strategy, values, like that would have been a core part of the book. And it is a part of this book. I think it's two chapters essentially. Um, But I think it's in my mind that evolved over time because on one hand, it's very, very important. I mean, the foundation, the mission, vision, strategy, all, all that is really important. It's also not felt. So like, you're not, you don't sit there this week thinking I got to get that vision straight, you know, before Sunday, or like, I got to clarify my strategy. Uh, And it, it by itself doesn't recruit volunteers. So it doesn't help there. But I do think it's critical. You know, I use an example of um, there's an organization called Stadia that plants churches and they've helped plant a number of churches. And we've partnered with them with our church to help plant other churches. And I have no idea what their mission statement was before, but they changed it a number of years ago to this until every child has a church. And I was like, that's awesome. I mean, like I was already for church planting, you know, but when you put it that way and I have a bias towards kids ministry and families, it's like. That is great. And so and I don't even know what that mission and the rebranding of that has even done for their organization, but it's an, it's an example of how that can matter. Like people want to know why this matters. What's the purpose of this? How's that going to impact their life? Where are we headed? You know, how are we going to get there? And I think with mission, vision, strategy, all of those things, the most important part is it provides clarity yeah. and people move towards clarity. So like, if you can be clear about the mission of your church, the vision of your ministry, the strategy and how you're going to do what you do, people move towards that. As opposed to if it's confusing, they kind of step away from it. Like, I don't know. You know, is this for me? I'm not sure. So I think it's really important. It's just not the thing that's urgent ever. Yeah. And well, and there's that that tug between urgent and important. And so mm-hmm. many times we get caught up in in whatever urgency is in front of us at the moment that we we lose sight of those important things that are worth effort. And so, boy, getting your vision, your mission, clarifying language around those things so mm-hmm. that you can communicate that in a articulate that in a clear and compelling way. It's so valuable. So that's certainly something we need to be invested in as we look to recruit, to recruit with purpose, right? We're not just recruiting mm-hmm. because we have a need and there's an obligation. We're recruiting because there is a much higher level need that's driven by vision. So important for us to know. What, what about Nick? What about the, uh, you talk about having a strategy for volunteers, right? Volunteers are not just people that fill uh, gaps, but we need to have a strategy for uh, have a plan for those volunteers. 
Yeah. And volunteers want to be part of something that also has a plan. Like, you know what I mean? Like most people don't want to sign up to serve. And then it's like, okay, what am I doing? I don't know what that is. Do I show up? Yeah. Yeah. I started, uh, my son, our oldest is 10 years old. He loves soccer and lacrosse. I love football as we've talked about. And he did a flag football last year in this coach league and they needed some coaches. And I'm like, you know what? I'll do it. I love football. It would be a chance to get my, my son and my friend's son on the same team. And so I'd said, yeah, I'll coach. Well, you know, that process of, of doing that was like, uh, sign up. I talked to the, you know, league organizer or whoever it was. And it was, that was pretty much it, right? Like there wasn't much of a strategy to it. I barely knew what the schedule was. When does it start? How many practices are we supposed to have? How are we helping kids get better at different ages, you know, within this program? Like if there was a strategy, I didn't know. It. You didn't know, <laughs> you know what so I mean? You were willing and you were available, yeah. but yeah. you were not well equipped. And you know what I did too, which is probably what your volunteers would do if they don't know is I implemented whatever strategy I wanted. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, Hey, in yeah. the absence of that, especially as someone who is a leader, uh, okay, I'm going to do what I want to do and we'll see if this works. And so uh, it was, I mean, I loved it. It was fun. And actually now my son's playing in a different league this year. And it's like, it's way better. You know, like it's clear, even the vision of this it's flag football league, right? You know, like, it's not like it's um, changing the world, but the vision was clear. So I think volunteers, you need a strategy to recruit volunteers, which is kind of like what we talked about in the last episode. And then I think you need a strategy for your ministry or just maybe it's your church overall. And people, your volunteers should know that, you know, like in our church, our strategy is the three C's. We want to help people celebrate, connect, and contribute. And the idea is if we can get somebody to celebrate in services and then connect in a small group and then contribute by serving and giving their uh, time and finances in the church, if they just do that over and over again, and there's lots of things we do within those three C's, but that's the overarching strategy. That's how we're going to help people find and follow Jesus. And so I think, you know, a lot of churches do have a strategy and if that's, if, if that's clear and compelling, that's it. Maybe you don't even need a separate one for your kid's ministry, but you might need one, you know, that's unique to your kid's ministry. Like if I were describing our kid's ministry strategy, you know, I would talk about large group and what we do there. I would talk about small group and partnering with parents. You know, those would be three pieces of that. And you can wordsmith it, come up with like some ways to say it. But I think the most important thing is it's clear. People know this is how we're going to serve kids and families in our church and so, and, and, and it needs to be like three or four things, not 27 things, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and as part of our strategy. Well, you talk about the idea of giving your ministry away to your volunteers. So that, that's a little different than not giving them any instruction and letting them take it and make it whatever they want to, where you have all these different coaches or leaders doing their own thing. But you talk about owning your ministry in a way that you actually share that ministry with volunteers. Yeah. And I love that phrase. I learned that from a church that I uh, worked with. In Virginia, they their church was is a pretty large church. I want to say at the time it was probably over two thousand at the one location that I was at, and then they had a couple campuses, and they were a little unique because they do a volunteer huddle some weeks of the month where it's every volunteer who's serving that morning. I mean, so like it's a it's a huge group of people standing around in a huge circle in their lobby, and the Sunday I was there, they were actually doing their huddles like get, gathering with volunteers before the service by ministry. And in the children's ministry huddle, the staff person talked about one of their values, which is we give ministry away. And I was like, I love that. That's great. What they mean is we do not lead everything, decide everything, do everything. You know, we delegate, we get other people, we give ministry that we're doing away to them. And that's one of the best things we can do 
as children's ministry leaders because I remember when our church started and it was not a normal church plant. Uh, we had a couple hundred people on the launch team. It's very not normal. Uh, and we had 30 kids, you know, right at the, or thir- we had 30 uh, volunteers right at the gate. Well, 30 is already enough volunteers that like, that's too many for me to lead well by myself. Right. And then once the church started, like most churches do, once they start, regard- regardless of what size they are, it grows, you know, that when you launch and people start showing up and eventually it was 60 volunteers, which is awesome. I mean, who doesn't want to double their volunteers? But for me, I wasn't giving ministry away. So I was leading all 60 myself. And I am not that good of a leader, not even close, you know, so they just weren't well cared for. Uh, They weren't developed. And a lot of that just comes back to, I didn't give ministry away yet. I did eventually, which, you know, that's what helped us grow past that 60 volunteer number. But initially it was all coming back to me, you know, which was not healthy. Giving that ministry, giving my ministry away, right? Even as I talk about my ministry, it can be hard to give that away, right? As, As a staffer, I feel responsible because it's my job to own this, right? I feel responsible to not lean so heavily on my volunteers that they're doing quote, my job. Give my, give our listeners a little bit, Nick, of, of some wisdom in that. Is it, why should that not be a threat to us, but something that we really, we, we uh, pursue? Yeah. I think sometimes you think, well, if you're, if you're, I mean, I don't want to get too deep too fast, but if you're too much of our identity is attached to what we do in a ministry, which is a challenge for all of us, that's hard because now I'm not just giving away responsibility or tasks. I'm giving away like part of myself. Like yeah. what, what if that person does it better than me? What does that say about who I am and my value? So that's a real thing. That's hard. And then some of us are wired to where, well, if I do that, if they do that, what do I do? In fact, actually, some attenders would say that too. You know, if they grow up in a church where staff did everything, they would think, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to do this, then what are you doing? You're the one that's paid here. And I just was um, raised differently in a sense, I guess. And I say raised, meaning like as a young church leader, I was taught that you should work yourself out of a job. And then if you do that, that'll bring value to the church and there'll be other jobs. And that really has been my story. Like I actually, I'm the next gen pastor at church, but I also oversee our operations and I involved in our church planting and uh, our internships and residencies. And why is it? Because like, if you can work yourself out of a job, you can usually find yourself some other jobs, you know, that you like. Now, right. I also like uh, variety. So part of it's my personality. I like to be in different things. And so I think deciding, hey, here's an area of the ministry, whether it's like, I remember when we started the church, I was so blessed that there was a volunteer who volunteered without me asking to lead the nursery, just that room. So that was the only piece of the ministry that was given away, so to speak, from early on. I had everything else. Well, you know what ran better than everything else? The nursery, right? Because she knew it better than I did. It was, you know, she cared for those volunteers better than I did. And so I even focused on just that one job, right? And so 97 things. Yeah. And of course she was even more skilled for me for that. And so it was like, that was a one little example I should have seen and realized yeah. it took actually Jim Weidman. I mentioned him the last time we uh, yeah. talked on the podcast. Uh, you know, Jim has a great book about this called stretch and just learning from Jim. I was like, okay, I need to, I need to do this. I need to put a structure in place where I'm giving leadership authority away, giving ministry away. And I did, you know, I did and kept doing that over the years. And, and I think there was a direct correlation between me being stalled at 60 volunteers and then the growth of that you know, after ministry was given away. That giving away can be hard, but it's so valuable because we get, uh, we get time back when we can do that, right? And energy back. So even as we talk about the idea of the t- giving the time it takes to do the importance rather than the urgent, 
right? We, we need to delegate so we can elevate and raise our thinking mm. to higher levels. So by yep. releasing pieces of our ministry without releasing total control, right? We, I think of, uh, I think of Moses in uh, Exodus 13, where Jethro comes and, you know, all the people line up to see Moses and, and his father-in-law says, man, this isn't good. Instead, select for yourself some people and empower them, train them, equip them, set them up and empower them, and then let them handle the small things and bring the big things to you. That's such a great model for us to find people that we can trust and entrust so that we truly can elevate our thinking. We're not dealing with those urgencies all the time, but we can deal with what's truly important. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear their father-in-law say what you're doing <laughs> is not good. Like that, that, that's not, you know, that's not, you know, what you want to hear when, you know, father-in-law comes into town, but it was true. And it's so many of us as ministry leaders too. And I think it goes back to, I think we talked before about how a lot of us never learned volunteer recruiting. I think most of us never learned um, leadership development, you know, empowering others and setting up some kind of a structure. Like, again, this is just not probably uh, what we learn in a church, working for a church, or even if we went to some type of Bible college or seminary. Nick, give us a couple practical steps or tips or things about how we can uh, equip and empower our volunteers. What are some of the things that you recommend? I know you talk also about like a secret sauce. Yes, yes, we can talk about that. And that's for all volunteers. Uh, I mean, some of my journey I would share, and I just because I think it helps practically, like I made so many mistakes, but there were a few of these things I would do over and over again, you know, because they worked well. Um, one of the first things that I ever did to help empower volunteers was just start a children's ministry leadership team. We met once a month. Um, usually it was like a, a weeknight or something like that. I handpicked, you know, six to 10 people. We would listen to a podcast snippet together. We'd read a, a book together, but like, I didn't expect them to read, you know, a lot. So we'd read like a few chapters that month and then, you know, a few chapters that month. And we would evaluate, you know, we, we would plan some things, but it really wasn't like a planning team. It was more of like a leadership development thing. We did assessments together. So like personality profiles and, you know, the Enneagram, I didn't even know what it was back then, but uh -huh. things like that. And that was fun. And it just, it raised the buy-in, right? They all of a sudden they're, I haven't even really given ministry away yet, technically. Like some of those people were leading other volunteers, but a lot of those volunteers on that leadership team weren't really leading anybody else. They just, you know, they were, they were my most committed volunteers. And then if you fast forward, I kind of reorganized the structure and said, okay, I can't lead 60 volunteers. Well, I wasn't leading 30 volunteers. Well, and I think this is true. If somebody's listening and they've got 17 volunteers and they're thinking, ah, you know, these examples you're given, they're too big. In my opinion, once you get to 10 volunteers, you should be thinking about this. How do I give some of this leadership away so that it can grow to 20 to 40 and things like that? And so I just outlined kind of an org chart, a volunteer org chart. What could this look like if I had other volunteers leading teams? I put my name in all the boxes. So I was like Moses. Okay. Yeah. Like you see the org chart. It's like, actually, I think even back then I found a picture online of Moses in a bunch of the org chart boxes. And that was hilarious. And, uh, and use that. And I think I just put my name in there and I told the story you were talking about with Moses and just recruited people to be coaches to fill into some of those slots and then gave them, and it wasn't easy, right? It took time, but basically it's like, you lead this team, you lead all of the small group leaders at the 11 o'clock service in elementary, you lead the entire preschool you know, volunteers at the 930 service and you're a preschool coach. I would call them coaches. That's what our term was for it. You can call them whatever, but I think defining the structure is what allows you to see, okay, what do I need? How many of these coaches, so to speak, do I need 
And then I, you know, I did a training where I invited people. Hey, if you're interested, let's talk. That is risky, Chuck, because you might have people sign up that aren't really a fit. And then you got to tell them no. Um, but I also did like a group, a six week group where we kind of went through and it was a little bit like a discover, discovering your gifts and your personality and your passions and things like that. And I did that group as a way to see, okay, who do I want to personally invite? You know, and I did, I invited three or four of them. And, you know, through those methods, that's pretty much how I got my first coaches. And now I had a structure, you know, where I was leading coaches who were leading volunteers, as opposed to just me leading all the volunteers. Outstanding. Nick, thank you so much for spending time with us. This book, got, listeners, the Volunteer Playbook, you can find it at volunteerplaybook.com. Of course, look for it through Amazon or wherever else you find books. The Volunteer Playbook by our friend Nick Blevins. It's a proven framework to help your church recruit, train, and empower more volunteers. And Nick, man, thank you for sharing these things with us. You have just amazing insights, and we're so appreciative. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for everything you all do to equip and serve the church. We need it, and we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's so good to have friends in ministry in different parts of the country who are doing things uh, in different ways, different places, and to come together to encourage and uh, build each other up and to, you know, that iron sharpens iron when we rub together. So, man, Nick, thank you so much. Listeners, we appreciate you. And I want to welcome you to check out other episodes of the podcast. You can go to lifeway.com slash kids and click on podcast, or you can go wherever you consume podcasts to find our archives. Look for that prior episode with Nick Blevins, where we talk about other volunteer recruitment strategies and ideas. And make sure you check out Nick's book, The Volunteer Playbook at volunteerplaybook.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back again soon for another episode of the Kids Ministry 101 podcast.